Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to The Hobcast, episode number 132. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Thrillers. Mysteries. Suspense. And crime. Welcome to the show. Our guest this week is Quentin Bates, who is a brilliant translator of Icelandic into English and has therefore been at the vanguard of this incredible rise of Icelandic crime fiction in the uh, in in the UK and uh, around Europe, and the uh, also success in terms of awards as well. It's been um, really fantastic um, how Icelandic noir has uh, broken into these marketplaces. And he has a passion for everything Icelandic. He does. He has an amazing life story, Quentin Bates, and he's also an author in his own right. So we'll be talking about the translation process. His uh, journey from uh, from the UK to Iceland and his lifelong passion for the country, and uh, how he fell into the translation game. Yes, and how busy he is, which is incredible and great. Absolutely. Let's get into the news, and um, it's not the happiest news at the moment, is it? In many ways, uh, because this week we retweeted a uh, an article from the bookseller, which looked at the state of independent publishing in the UK, not least based on the closure of Sandstone Press, which was announced last week. Um, we said so on the on the podcast, which was a bit of a shock to you because that's a one of the one of the big established indies in the UK. Yeah, I was genuinely very shocked because um, I've known about them for years with my writers and artists book hat on. So yeah, it was a big shock. There was no warning as far as I could see either. And they they've done very well. They've won prizes. Their books have won prizes. They've you know been sort of put forward as a sort of paragon of an independent publisher, Scottish independent publisher. So yes, it was a big shock. So this article, uh, which came out on the twenty eighth of July, uh, in the book uh, seller, talks about the independent publishers in the UK have spoken of their fears over financial viability after renowned Scottish house, Scott the Sandstone Press, went to the wall, and. Uh, they have cast around for uh, a number of opinions. And this week also there was the news that Hope Road, who've been going for nearly 15 years, uh, who publish African, Caribbean and Asian fiction and non-fiction, um, they have launched a crowdfunding campaign to try and raise £75,000 to secure its two-year plan um, with Rosemary Hudson, who created uh, Hope Road, uh, citing unprecedented pressures on cash flow and not being able to attract Arts Council England funding in the current round, which had previously had relied upon. Um, and the corollary to this is that uh, Hope Road failed to get uh, Arts Council England funding, which was a massive blow to them. But Jacaranda, who have a very similar sort of uh, ethos and background, did get £150,000 of support from Arts Council England um, and have just appointed Dorothy Coombson onto their specialist board to oversee how that money is spent. So, you know, you take with one and give with the other. I know. And it, it, what it, I was just thinking about this was if you're a publisher who relies on um, Arts Council England funding and that is your main source of funding, what alternative do you do you have but to get readers to fund you through crowdfunding? That's the only alternative because mm. there's no help from anywhere else. So this is the third story probably in the last two months yeah. we've talked about crowdfunding. We talked about... Um, uh, there was a, a bookshop, uh, Leanne book, and... Bookworms and Dragon Tales over in Norwich. They, yeah. they, they had to uh, to keep going and they've been on the show. And then we were uh, also looking at crowdfunding for, for another was uh, it press. The Hennington Family Press. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, so th this is uh, 
a, a you know a growing thing, and I can't say it hasn't crossed our minds as well. <laughs> at some point, uh, we'll we'll have to look at that. But you know, the fact is that cash flow is incredibly tough. And you know, give an example for us, and we won't say specifics, but we expected a, a large um, <laughs> contract fulfilment, which we've been waiting for months for. Should have arrived last Friday. It didn't. And, you know, there are things that we need to pay for that are waiting on that money. And I feel really cross about that, actually, because I was in my head, I thought, OK, the money from that is going to go to that, that and that and that. And now I can't. Yeah. So, so we're paralysed as a company because another company who, you know, had our books on their shelves for some time. May. Yeah, since May, haven't paid us yet. And uh, we're in, coming into August. So there you go. This is this is the nature of the business at the moment. Um, so this article goes into greater depth and there are a number of um, publishers saying that we're really struggling. Um, Renard press in East London told the bookseller said that, uh, the, um, the, the case of sandstone was sad, chilling, unsurprising, and not an isolated case mm. citing rocketing distribution, printing and staffing costs as a result of Brexit. He said suddenly huge amounts of extra admin is required of small teams. Absolutely right. And then um, goes on to say the impending closure of Grantham Book Services, which is yeah. run, by, as we've mentioned before, by Penguin Random House and others already feeling the strain with sharp inflation and bloated fuel costs showing no signs of relenting. We can only expect things to worsen. <laughs> of course, distributors must eventually pass along increased costs. And the first signs of contract terms increasing for publishers is showing already. Without relief, this may well continue, he said, commenting that publishers were balanced on a knife edge. Well, uh, I think that's that's true. And uh, you mentioned Henningham Family Press. Uh, he said that uh, this is um, David Henningham, co-founder of the of yeah, the, of it's the a company, couple, a bit like us, right? <laughs> said that Brexit was exacerbating the administrative burden as well as costs, and uh, Brexit has hit us by increasing production costs and lead times. Absolutely, books have become between twenty to forty percent more expensive to print since January twenty twenty one. Now, suppliers tell us a lot of the materials specific to the trade aren't produced in the UK, which is also true because, as we were discussing with CPI, a lot of the people who are making paper have moved into different have, have moved away from making paper for books. Yes, because they get more more business sense to do that. So yeah, there's other products that they're, they're making. It's packaging products. Yeah, it's it? packaging, indeed. Yeah, they've moved into packaging. So that's difficult, and um, uh, yeah, it's it's been. This is repeated across the, the thing, but there is a, a corollary to this, I ought to say, um, that uh, Bridget Shine, who is the uh, chief executive of the Independent Publishers Guild, of which we're members, said, uh, this is her quote, there's no doubt that conditions are challenging at the moment and very high costs are impacting consumer spending at the margins of all businesses, regardless of size. Independent publishing has always been a steady turnover of businesses, or rather seen it, uh, through closures and usually a result of specific circumstances rather than macro trends, adding that for every departing IPG member, we see at least one more exciting startup emerging to take its place. Right, well, I know that you've got to try and put a positive spin on it, but <laughs> I do think that that's a little tone deaf from, yeah. the, from the body that is supposed to be representing does, independent it, publishers. It does make me feel misunderstood by um, an organisation that should have a great understanding of what it's like. Yeah. I think that what... <laughs> That really got under my skin, actually, that comment. And um, the reason I say that is because, OK, we're all right, Jack. As long as we get new members paying the subs, we're all right. That's not what the IPG should be about. Um, you know, that's what that message gives us. And to say that, you know, it's all down to, you know, independent individual circumstances is nonsense. The fact is that individual circumstances are brought on by various things, but macro trends do play a part. Uh, well, they obviously do. Just look at the evidence of the last six months, or even last year, or Utterly. even since the beginning of the pandemic. It's this, you can't ignore the evidence that it's, macro is very important to it, all businesses. So I don't think it's really appropriate to put a positive spin and stop trying to do so, because you know, you're not doing us any, any benefits. And in fact, the, the question remains, who is out there to support independent businesses of this nature? Because the Arts Council funding, that's done for the next three years, so there's nowhere to apply, even if you were, were running something that, that uh, they've deemed worthy. Yeah. Should we put it that way? Um, who's out there to support? Because, you know, the big publishers want as many of the small publishers to go to the wall as possible or to buy or them up. Or to, yeah. If they've got interesting IP, then they'll 
consume them like a big jellyfish. Um, so really, who, who's out there representing the small publishers, the independent publishers? You know, the fact is that the awards, seven awards from the IPG went to Bloomsbury this year, which, you know, just makes you wonder what's the point. Yes, it's that definition of independent again, isn't it? That's um, tricky in this case. Let's bring it round then to um, the subject of awards, because there was another story that you, you yeah. mentioned. Well, I mean, speaking as a small publisher, we do look to awards as a way to try and get ourselves um, noticed, try and get more readers, because it doesn't cost very much. It's a low-cost way to get the books um out there a bit more so I'm a big fan of applying for awards so you know as everyone knows we've had um, titles shortlisted for the Daggers and Bloody Scotland and um, Naya Marsh Prize yeah there's something called the Rubbery Book Prize which I hadn't heard of before but one of our books was um, shortlisted for that as well and the um, the Bloggers Awards as well. It's another good one. And, of course, we've had lots of Chill with a Book Awards before they oh, sadly yes. closed, which we announced last week. Yeah, so, you know, I'm always up for that, and I know it takes time, but there are publishers who say that the awards are old-fashioned now because they take a lot of time, they take uh, there's a certain amount of money, especially the big awards. Um, maybe well, let's, let's just talk about those figures because I, I think, we, you know, we're skirting around it a little bit, but, you know, it's a considerable expense to apply for some of these awards because if nothing else you've got to send over physical copies to the judges and if it's a panel of six that's six copies so that's not in an you know an expensive commitment um in terms of postage and and print costs but in addition to that um there are entry fees as well well speaking with my henshaw press short story hat on um, I know that those fees get eaten up very quickly and um, admin. So if I paid myself for the work I did on Henshaw Press, that competition would make a very big loss. Right. So you're doing it voluntarily. I'm doing it for nothing, yeah. Yeah. What, are we, what does the Henshaw Prize charge for a submission? It's only £6 per submission. Right. And that covers that, the cost of? Well, no, that goes towards the... Well, it covers the cost of... Um, the prizes themselves right so um and there's a certain amount of advertising not very much and the website hosting and any surplus then gets donated yes okay gotcha that's the cat snoring in the background I was by just, the way where is she though i can't she's in see the pink her. chair she's in the tv pink chair my, my chair oh i can't see an ear yes there she is i've been sat here for 20 minutes thinking i can hear snoring but i cannot see the source that's the cat um, she can't help herself getting on the podcast. Anyway, the um, so that's that, that's interesting to to know. But I mean, you know, we're talking about certain prizes will cost, uh, well, three figures per per book that you enter. Yeah. So say you were lucky enough to get two books shortlisted for Bloody Scotland. Yes. I, I can't remember the exact figure, but it is into the three figures because you are supporting their promotion of the shortlist. Right. No, I, and I, t- I do see, I see that. I understand that. But I remember the first time we um, nominated... Yeah, we gulped. We did gulp a little bit. <laughs> um, but, the, but the daggers are actually very good value, okay. I think, because you don't pay anything towards promotion. You pay, um, you pay your fee for entering a book. You pay, obviously, to send copies to the judges. So we're talking, I don't know, that's about £150 for us, right? But that's it. If it gets shortlisted, and also we get half our feedback because we're members. Right. And if it gets shortlisted, if it, you don't pay anything towards the marketing and promotion, okay. they do all that. Yeah. No, well, uh, you know, it's 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 an interesting debate. Yeah. Are they worth it's, it? It's like a gamble, isn't it? I mean, I've seen... Uh, well, I think it's, about this, and I think, well, I well, think it's very easy to say it's not worth it if you don't get nominated or shortlisted. Um, <laughs> but you can't guarantee that. No, no, exactly. It's a competition, isn't it? I mean, that, that is the nature of it. So, yeah, I think they have a place to play. I think if if you don't have those awards, certainly, you know, there was a big uh, concern when Costa pulled out of you know what was the Whitbread and 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 that was that was withdrawn but there's a cafe nero one now isn't there yes exactly someone else has taken advantage and and moved in on that territory i know that when uh for instance in the radio industry sony pulled out sony radio awards was the oscars of british radio right and they withdrew their funding and they basically didn't know how they were going to keep going so it's called the aria awards now it's not actually sponsored by a particular company 
but losing the the, the sobriquet uh, Sony or if you like, um, for instance, the, the Edinburgh Festival yeah. used to have the Perrier Comedy Awards, and then Perrier stopped. Um, well, that's the thing, isn't it? You sponsoring need, it to and, make money, you need a sponsor. Well, what I'm saying is, is that actually that that for those companies, I don't think they recognise how important this being synonymous with those awards is because. Everyone says, "Oh, I, you know, I won a Perrier." They don't say, "Oh, I won the um, yeah, I won Edinburgh, Festi- Coffee. Edinburgh Fringe Festival, uh, you know, award for comedy." It just doesn't have the same ring, mm. and I think that these companies give up too easily. Um, such an important piece of publicity. Yeah, it's one of those. Yes, it's a, it's one of those. Um, I can't remember the terminology for it, but it's a type of marketing, isn't it? Where you, it's like a loss leader, kind of, but. You don't. You can't measure. Well, it's proximity. The proximity marketing, yeah. isn't it? And maybe we should get so a sponsor for the Henshaw Press competition. Then maybe we could. <laughs> maybe we could. Uh, which, incidentally, is uh, coming to a big day today. Yes. Yeah, so the winners are being announced on social media today, and they are actually already on the website. But I, I want you to wait till you see the tweets and then find out. Um, and the competition starts again tomorrow for August and September. So some fantastic entries. In fact, they oh, were brilliant! All had merit, but some were just brilliant. And uh, oh, and the winners, fantastic. So, and that's available on the website. The, the the three stories, the first, second, and third prize, are on the website to read. So, have your coffee and have a look. Okay, let's get to our interview, shall we? Yes, Quentin. Yes, and uh, it's 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 terrific, really. It, you know what a what a story of of uh, a life where you stumble into things and make the most <laughs> of each of your opportunities. But uh, as Quentin says, Quentin Bates, this is uh, you know his love affair with Iceland and all things Icelandic uh, was completely by chance, and uh, you know gap year became a gap decade. <laughs> did lots and lots of interesting things, not least working on boats um, as a trawlerman. Just um, you know, a whole different ethos and and ecosystem. But uh, it leads to this point where he's an, a published author, and also the translator of many many great books. He's a busy man, and he so, has cats. He does. Let's talk to Quentin Bates. It's terrific to speak to Quentin Bates here on the Hobcast Book Show. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. I, listen, I, I, one thing I wanted to ask you straight away is, you are. To, to a degree responsible for the slew of impossible names to pronounce at <laughs> British crime festivals um, because you've translated many of the great Icelandic crime writers. I uh, take pride in that. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say. I so I, I hold you wholly responsible for that because I approach these people and I have no idea how to say their names. <laughs> but we had Yanina Leasdotti, uh on the on the programme. I hope that's not too bad. No, but, that's good enough, yep. Um, very respectable. So yeah. I, I may be asking you to to help us through and, and guide that. But let, let's let's uh, talk about your your overall career. I mean, at what stage did you get into this game of both writing and being a translator? Uh, I've been writing for a long time. It must be thirty years. I fell into journalism as an accidentally through my former career um, writing about shipping essentially yeah and i still do that i still write about nautical and maritime stuff and quotas and radars and you know, that troll doors and all that kind of stuff and then i had this weird idea that writing a novel might be fun <laughs> um which it was and then there were a few more and then i was asked to translate a book uh and that i did that I'd already translated other stuff before that. I'd translated a lot of technical material and news articles and uh, and one book, actually, as well. Yeah, and then it sort of grew from there. So now I do more translation than my own stuff. Is that a frustration? No, not at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> not not yet, no, no. I can, I can still do both at the moment. But I'm a bit booked up solid at the moment. I have a few more in the queue. So um, yeah, if I could do sort of four translations a year, I'd be very happy. I'd there's write. an art. There's an art to translation that's related to being a writer, isn't there? Because you're not just translating word for word exactly what they're saying. You've got to sort of become that writer, but in a different language. So it's a creative process as well, isn't it? So yeah, you you're not translating directly in this. Well, with fiction, you're not translating in the same way that as if you were translating uh, a handbook for an outboard motor or something like that. 
you're essentially retelling the tale in the words that the author would have used if they'd written it in English rather than translating directly. And there are all kinds of tricks and dodges and, and whatnot. Yeah, and you can stretch things as well. <laughs> and sometimes you have to stretch things because there are a lot of things that are untranslatable or, or simply don't work if you translate them directly. And building that knowledge, I mean, you, the, the, if we go back to your sort of um, your earlier years and how you got to be in Iceland and learning the language, it was um, you describe it on your website as a gap year that stretched to a decade. <laughs> yeah, like that's that. exactly what it was. Yeah, it was a gap year that became a gap decade. It became a gap decade. Yeah. What was that like then? Arriving, I mean, it's such a, a, a it's an alien landscape. Clearly, I mean, it's you know, it's what draws people to it is just so different from from many other places in the world but what was your experience of arriving in Iceland um did you fall in love straight away several times <laughs> <laughs> it was a very different place then um because I was offered a job for a few months to go and work in this place up in the far northwest of Iceland and thought, okay I'll give it a try but at that time, there were no faxes. There was no email. Um, if you wanted to phone home, that cost a fortune. And off, as often as not, you had to go down to the post office and book a phone call. If the roads were closed and there were no flights, then there would be no post for until the flights resumed. So, yeah, it was much more isolated than, than it is now. I think people would find that really now. People would find that really hard to imagine because... It would Even be if you cut off my post now, there's the email and the internet, and that's right. Yeah, there was no internet. That that was that came much much later. So you you there was what you heard on the radio, or you could see what was on the news sometimes on the TV because there were I think four hours of TV back then, uh, eleven months of the year uh, and six days a week because one day a week TV the TV station closed down. Did you read a lot of books? I read an awful lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> I read the whole library pretty much. I can imagine. I think I'd be the same. Yeah, I think I read the whole of the English department of the of the local library pretty much within the first year and a half or something like that. It got to the point where English books were like gold dust. You know, people passed them around. So oh, I got England, another one. Yeah, <laughs> and I read all kinds of things that I wouldn't have otherwise read because there was nothing else to read. I suppose that's good in a way that you 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 would you reading things you wouldn't otherwise read because there's no choice and you might exactly, discover yeah, yeah. all kinds of, that, all kinds would... of strange things and yeah weird and wonderful stuff that I wouldn't have picked up otherwise and then I had to start reading Icelandic books as well but that was fun that was interesting because when I when you get to the to the tipping point in in a language where things start to make sense from the context rather than from having to constantly look things up. And that's where that's when it starts to snowball. Sorry, I was going to ask, how long did that process take in terms of you know becoming comfortable? The in tipping Iceland? point. Uh, I think it probably took four years to reach the tipping point, something like that. Three, three or four years to reach that that particular tipping point, and then everything started to move after that. When I could pick up a book and, well, a fairly simple book. <laughs> <laughs> And sort of read through it and see words and realise what they meant without actually having to go and go and look them up. Yeah, because we do that in English, don't we? When we're reading in English, uh, absolutely, yes, we do. Yeah, we, oh, I know what that means. But and and there are still words that I use all the time and hear that, and I've never really figured out what they actually mean. I just use them. <laughs> what in Icelandic? In English, uh, yes. Or in English. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, obviously in English as well. Yeah. I uh, try and blag it as far as I can. I must admit, I do that as well, don't I? And sometimes I say something and you say, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? <laughs> I've used it in a slightly not quite correct context, but I've always used it in that context. Nobody's ever pointed it out. <laughs> you, know, you know what you mean. So no, that sounds fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated by anybody who's been to sea. Um, I don't know why, uh, because it's something that I don't think I'd ever be able to do. But to go out, on trawlers like you did and have done and obviously it's an area of interest and expertise that you still have um that is i mean as all these documentaries <laughs> which you love watching don't you <laughs> this, catch, this yeah. that and the other um uh absolutely fascinates me and i have no in, in fairness i have spent a little bit of time down in um in newlyn 
getting to uh, you know, <laughs> as, as the boats land. I mean, that's a completely different level of uh, of danger to to what you've experienced, presumably. In the Wild West, yeah. Well, I worked in New Lynn for about a year and a half. Fascinating so, place. It's lovely, yeah. It's a strange place. Yeah, it's it's a it it is an odd place to say the least. I better not probably probably better not say too much, otherwise I'll be sort of you no. Know, the New Lynn Mafia will come and duff me up. <laughs> oh gosh, we wouldn't want to be well, responsible I mean, that, for that. I mean, it's funny you should pick that up because it is true that I mean there are certain families. You know, there's an omerta sort of feel around some of it, and the way that the, the market operates, and you know who gets what, and the, yeah, it's it's a fascinating place in that regard. But but New Lynn was a very different place when I worked there because that was in the in the nineties, and things have changed an awful lot since. What was your first experience at sea like then? You, was that in Iceland then? That was in Iceland, yeah. Very different to working in England. Mm. In Iceland, fishing is quite a um, is quite a middle class pursuit, really. Oh right, I didn't know that. Yeah, compared to compared to the way it is in here, I worked on bigger boats in Iceland, much larger, much more comfortable at the time, very modern boats, uh, and you'd be at sea for. Well, fresher trawlers, you'd be at sea for a week or 10 days. Mm. Uh, freezer, you'd be away for three weeks, maybe more. But the the factory trawler I worked on for four years, uh, it's the only time I've ever put on weight. Really? Yeah. Not through fish eating? <laughs> no, because um, you work for six hours, then you're off for six hours. Mm. So, and that around the clock. No, for the whole for the whole trip, you six hours on, six hours off. Well, so that messes with your sleep a bit, presumably. Well, it's the same pattern that the Royal Navy uses, isn't it? Yeah. On their ships. Yeah. So they you watch. get up at six in the morning, and there's breakfast, and you work till twelve, and there's lunch, and then you work till, and then you get up again at six in the evening. There's your dinner, and you finish, and then there's a big spread of food on the table, and you, of course, you feed yourself before you go to sleep. There's a lot of eating. So, then. so there's a lot of lot of eating going on there. <laughs> And you need the, the calories was, um, in that sort of job. Say again? You need the calories in a in a in a in a trawler in a factory not ship. Really, not that kind of ship, no. It no, okay. Um because you spent most of your time standing at the at the, at the trimming table. You were just cleaning fillets <laughs> and I mean it was obviously physical work, but it wasn't as, as strenuous as working on a one working working on one of the English boats. It was more about endurance than <laughs> But in terms of, I mean, we've talked to um, other authors who've had experiences in, if you like, dangerous occupations. And uh, I'm thinking of David Beckler, who's a former firefighter, and and the sort of camaraderie that gets developed. And indeed, you know, the same when you speak to anybody who's an author who's been in the the police. In the armed, yeah, police forces. It must be a similar thing being in a boat. You learn about human nature up close, you know, nature. Uh, raw tooth and claw. And you can't stuff. escape, can you? Is, the people is, you're on the boat with. I'm just saying, I'm thinking, does that, uh, has that given you as a writer material and uh, insight? I hadn't actually thought about that. It's certainly to an extent, yes. Um, it gives you an insight into sometimes into a place you don't want to be. As if it's a bad trip um, with a crew that's yeah, with not the pleasantest crew, then you can't escape. You can't go home. You've got to knuckle down and make your way through it somehow. And I've I've done a couple of bad trips, not on Icelandic boats, but certainly on British ones, that really weren't pleasant. Um, yeah, and then sort of pat me back and said, bye, not coming back here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's um, you, you can find yourself in... I wouldn't say dangerous, but not pleasant situations. Do you miss the the, the spills and thrills of of uh, those other jobs? Or is no, this, no, that was so long ago now that I no, no, that the no, the the call of the sea is has long disappeared. Don't don't miss it in the least. I, I'm too old to do that kind of stuff now. Anyway, mm. Mm. you do it for pleasure that. at all? No, 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 no. Boats. But how far away are you from the sea? Because you're in Hampshire. Uh, if I stood on the roof, I could see it from here. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah you still it's... still got a little need for the sea. <laughs> no, not really. I I need to be near it. Uh, I can't be 
I can't live away from it, but I don't need to look at it every day. I just need to know it's there. Mm. It just needs to be there over there somewhere. I don't know where it is. I couldn't live inland. That would that would drive me nuts. Oh, you'd hate it here then. We live in Staffordshire. It's about as far as you can get. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, there's not you can't get very far from the sea in Britain. It's no, 80, no it's interesting, isn't it? If you talk to an American from Nebraska, for example, yes, and they say they've never seen the sea. I, I can remember when I, when I had um a year abroad as part of my degree and it was in Amsterdam it's not very far away but there were Americans there from Nebraska and Montana and and their minds were blown by every experience they had because when they flew over they that's the first time they saw the sea in their life absolutely yeah wow (laughs) (laughs) yeah that would be a bit mind-blowing wouldn't it yeah oh well they were mind-blown by everything like Amsterdam was mind-blowing for many reasons (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> can be yeah <laughs> we'll not go there it's very similar to Newlyn in that regard um <laughs> no um I was gonna to, to move on I mean in terms of when you've got your you've got a project in front of you which yep. needs translation into English what's your process it depends who it is if it's a if it's a trans if it's a book I've done if it's part of a series and I've already done books in that series and I'll generally just jump in and get on with it if I'm familiar with the characters and the author's tone of voice um, then I'll just jump in if it's somebody I haven't translated before then I'll generally read the first third of the book um, to try and get the tone and the feel of it but I, I won't read all, all the way to the end because I want to be excited as well I want to be I want to know what's coming next um yeah specifically for that reason i don't like it if i read the book all the way through i find that quite uncomfortable because i know what's coming yeah. i was just about to this just occurred to me that uh the art of translation might be similar to what adrian does which is narration yeah because yeah. you i'm sure you've said the same thing before that you you know if you know the book really well when you start narrating you don't have that surprise and that yeah. You can't quite put the right emotion into the reactions yeah. as you go through them. Yeah, but uh, I feel it makes it, yeah, you know, if I'm not getting that little bit of a, a, a buzz of excitement about it, it's, um, yeah, it feels wrong. But I will do, I will do the necessary research in, in advance. I will sort of read up on this and that and find things out. Um, I've just finished one yesterday, actually. <laughs> hey, um right? which is um, speculative fiction. Mm. Ah, yeah. That's an interesting genre, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, it was quite refreshing. It has the ancient, some of the ancient Norse gods transplanted to this dystopian version of the present. Well, fantastic. Um, and all kinds of, there's, there's dwarves and dark elves and trolls, giants, a minotaur. Uh, no dragons unfortunately <laughs> big disappointment when I got to the end and there were still no dragons so yeah but I had to yeah I had to do some reading up for that yeah so did you have to re-familiarize yourself with the Norse gods and all that sort of thing so you got there you could you know in terms of uh... well in terms of who was who yeah <laughs> yeah uh, so yeah I had to go back and read some of the Norse tales <laughs> well, that, that that was quite fun, yeah. Because I haven't read them for well years. <laughs> mm. So let's say you finished this thing to, yesterday and um, get that dispatched off to 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 the publisher or the the author. I mean, how how much further contact would you have um, in terms of uh, the translation? It, it, is there much more um, in, in the process or? Well, I when you to, hand it over, is 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 that it? I was going to say, uh, does it get like a, an edit in the same oh, yeah, way? Yeah. Um, well, well, I'm not sure with this one because it's a it's 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 one I haven't it's a company I haven't worked with before, so I don't know quite how they want to go about it. Um, because there's, I think there's some kind of TV tie in there as well. I'm not not quite sure. But um, with this one, I finished the translation, edited the translation just to go through it and weed out all the typos and whatnot and take out inconsistencies and whatnot. Then it went to the author 
and we had a long discussion about should we do this here, should we do that there, should we change this name, should we pronounce this one differently, and so on. When we're both happy, it goes to the to the publisher. Um, whether they want to edit it further is up to them, and they might get back to me with questions, or they might not. I don't know. Mm. But the ones I do regularly, um, then there's a yeah, you know, there's quite an established process with with me in being involved with the edits as well. Mm. So I, I take quite a well, I do what I'm asked to do. If they want me to take part in the edits, then I then I, then I, of course I do that because there would yeah. always be a few questions here and there that need to be answered. Sure, and and some of the authors you work with, and you know, you've worked extensively with Arenda, who do a lot of the translations, and we saw Karen at Harrogate this week, Karen Sullivan. Uh, oh, of course, yeah, yeah. fantastic um i've been to a festival since before covid so i'm just becoming a hermit down here <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> depends whether you i mean you go from one extreme to the other because harrogate is you can't move for people so i've never been to harrogate I, maybe i should be ashamed to admit that but no i've never been to harrogate i wouldn't be ashamed but well, it's a, certainly um it's it's of a different uh let me, how do we put it a different pitch to any of the other yeah festivals. i would start with bloody scotland if you're going to go to a festival yeah i've been to bloody scotland before yeah but i think yeah. apparently the place where bertie worcester's uncle george went to take the waters that's right yeah <laughs> <laughs> and indeed you know the hotel they they hold it in famously is where agatha christie disappeared to and uh uh when she went missing for a couple of weeks that's um, right yeah yeah when yeah. she went missing for 10 days yeah that's right. So yeah. it, it's it's a fascinating experience. But what I was thinking, you know, quite a number of the authors you've worked with have been very successful. Uh, you know, there's there's been a real, um, in in terms of the award scenario, uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, uh, Icelandic authors are, are are now winning those awards and 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 you know, fated uh, with the daggers and all that sort of thing. Um, how much pr- pleasure and um, uh you know do you take from that those those victories i mean how much do you feel is yours uh, oh that what can i say um essentially it's the author's work mm. fundamentally it's the author's work that um that is that is behind this i've interpreted it and added a bit of hopefully added a bit of gloss to it but um there's also the editor as part of this process as well so it's very much a, a there's three of us in this game and, and the editor certainly should get some kind of recognition for this as well there should be an award for editors as well yeah because there, there isn't there is there editors don't get no. recognized at all and, really and, and tra- translators have only quite recently been become become to be recognized as well yeah but uh, I've never had any awards. <laughs> uh, I haven't been nominated for any either. I don't think. No, but I never. I'm, I'm an award-free author. Um, one of my authors got an award for the translated book, and there was no mention of the translator. I've, I mm. saw Twitter weeks later <laughs> that he'd got an award for this particular book. I thought, oh right, okay. That's that's not right. I don't think. I think. Well, I think it's changed now. I think that certainly at the daggers, there is uh, at least a mention when when the uh, when people get up. At least the, when I went last year, that was the case. Mm. I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's an important correction and uh, an improvement um, in situation. Yeah. But um, it's interesting. Yeah, I I I, I wonder because we we. Um, on our program last week we're taking I mean we have nothing to do with this really but one of our authors um, it was the uh, scientific advisor on the book that won the Theakston's <laughs> crime war you know M.W. Craven's botanist oh, Brian right, Price yeah. was the scientific advisor and advised um, Mike Craven very wisely to drop the full details of how to create a particular type of toxin uh, because it was uh, in breach of the anti-terrorism legislation, and he'd gone to jail for putting it out there. Um, Ooh, yes, so quite quite a major 
uh, influence on on the outcome. But uh, yeah, again, you yeah. know, it, it, you know, we we will take anything. We'll take any <laughs> any slither of yeah. reflected glory here at Hobet Books. That's for sure. <laughs> but he, he's very useful, Brian. He's um, I mean, he he also proofreads all our books for free because he wants to, and he he's very good at saying. Oh, I don't think that would happen. It would happen two hours later. You would, you would first of all feel a bit poorly, and then you, you know, all this sort of very right, fine okay. detail about. Okay, excellent. Yeah, uh, yeah, and he, and Mike dodged the bullet there. He did. He really yeah. did. So, in, in, in terms of um, your own writing, yes. um, you say you, you know, clearly the, the translation side of things takes up most of your time, but how, how? Um, how much of a drive is there to write for yourself still? Uh, that's It's just started to come back, actually, because I haven't written one for quite a while now. The last one that came, last one was was published in 2000, I think it was. It, yeah, right in the middle of COVID. Um, and it didn't get much publicity, didn't get much traction. Um, so I didn't write any more after that. But now I've got, yeah, there's something else coming up uh, and it's going to be a little bit different. Well, it's going to be in a different kind of format, if you like. Oh, intriguing. Um, Can you say much more? (laughs) uh, It might not appear in English first. Ah. Yes. Japanese. Uh, No, it would be Icelandic. (laughs) (laughs) Not Japanese, unfortunately. Um, yeah, because mine haven't been particularly widely translated. Right. No, there was, there was a couple in German that didn't do particularly well. One or two in Hol- in Dutch, Finnish, and that's about it. Yeah, and there's th- and there's three, th- three, four, th- three in Icelandic as well, which was the, the only ones of those that I've actually been able to read. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, um, but it's, yeah, it's interesting when you get a translation in your hands, and this this is your book in Estonian, and you look at it and think, brilliant. Well, and you, but you've got no idea if it's well translated or badly translated, or you just have to accept it, don't you? You just have to accept it. Yeah, yeah. And this is actually a problem with my Icelandic authors because tra- translating from into English, you're in that specific situation where you can be fairly sure that your author is going to be able to read what you've done. Yeah. And not only will they be able to to comment that they will expect to, uh, which can be, it can be awkward, it can be great. Um, yeah, it can end anywhere between the two. Mm. Yeah, and that's and I get the impression that Icelandic people can be pretty direct, a bit like the Dutch. Um, you know, uh, if, yeah. if they're not happy with something, they'll let you know. So why did you use this word? And, well, because it's the right one. Oh, but I haven't heard that word before. And th- this is one of the, because Icelanders do speak English um, very fluently and readily. Um, com- yeah. Yeah, let's say that. They're very, yeah, their English tends to be very fluent and uh, strong on a, on a conversational level. And they're very you're ready and happy to to converse in English. But the default position is always if there's something that they don't understand or don't get or feel is wrong, it's the translator that's made a mistake. Not that it's a form of words or an expression that they're unfamiliar with. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, because you'd think they would be happy to learn something they didn't know. Yeah, but it's it's quite strange. Yeah, the, the, the default immediately it's, it's you must have made a mistake there. That's wrong. I don't I don't recognise that. It's almost like a defence reaction, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. I think it's just because they are so confident in English. Um, often, if it's a a more English form of words rather than American, an American style mm. construction of words, they'll they'll think it's they'll assume it's wrong. Oh. Yeah. How do you handle that? I mean, in terms of, because I mean, there's a, find a field and scream in it. Probably. No, I mean, there's there's a very a lot of this game is about, um, you know, collaboration is making allowances. Yep. It's it's 
give and take and it's it's taking a step back and trying to appreciate the other person when it's going well but sometimes yeah. you know it can feel very personal so um you know what sort of mindset do you take in that sort of to and fro uh it depends partly what the attitude is <laughs> but when i've cooled down <laughs> normally there's um normally it's a valid point of some kind maybe their direction isn't quite where it should be or maybe mine wasn't either but in generally there's a middle way or a third option um, and the solution is something that neither of us had thought of before so it does it's it does keep me on my toes which is not a bad thing at all no that's good isn't it i think that you know but both of you haven't thought of something and you were forced to by the conversation. And it's the nature of this game that, you know, when you are, you know, we're publishing authors, uh, you're working as an editor and I'm doing narration, you know, and indeed you're translating. So, you know, each person it's, it's like, I sometimes describe it as when you sign an author, you don't know what child you're getting, (laughs) Um, which I don't mean to be disparaging, but it's the nature of the, the character uh, what motivates them, the things that that irk them, the uh, you know the trigger points. You have to learn with every relationship, and because it's such a sort of, it's never a sort of you know, uh, it's rare that you see each other face to face. It's done mm. over email. It's that that can amplify issues that that perhaps don't need to be there. Absolutely, yes, that can certainly happen, and it's very much worth um connecting over zoom or google or whatever is to actually speak face to face um because yeah you you don't if everything's through email then you lose the nuance Mm. it's easy to take offense when none is intended or to you know or to or to stand innocuous when you did intend to give offense (laughs) (laughs) that happens to me both ways actually i'm always giving people offense when i really didn't mean it or yeah Yeah, i'm angry but they have no idea But but the variation is is huge. There's some authors you they'll get the manuscript and the, it'll come back covered in red lines. Um, some authors, I mean Solveig and Oscar, you just get one line back. This is fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Days. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it should be. But it, again, the editor plays a part in this as well so if if there really is a sticking point you say well okay we need to speak we need to bring the editor into this and and arbitrate and come up with a suitable solution Mm. and in terms of your own writing so as an an englishman uh, with obviously considerable experience and life experience in iceland writing about uh you know writing an icelandic character in icelandic situations um how was that received in iceland because if you were to extend the current uh there's a movement within um the literary world which suggests that you can only write what you're actually experienced and what you're entitled to write about yeah um, which is a load of old bs if in my opinion but yeah. nonetheless you're, you you know it is a situation you, you know you are writing about a culture that you, you you um have immersed yourself in but you're not from that country so was that well received or, or did you find any resistance? Uh, no, nobody said a word. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose a gap decade is a quite a good amount of time to mm. immerse yourself. Yeah. And, and I am still there quite a lot. So I'm, 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 I spend quite a lot of time in Iceland. Uh, you know, I, I don't, there isn't a day passes when I don't speak Icelandic to somebody or other. Well, because especially because my wife's here and we have to speak to each other all the time. Um, I'm guessing she's Icelandic. She is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but How about the cats? Do you speak to them in English or Icelandic? Both. <laughs> that, that can that can vary. That can be either. I uh, think all cats. How cool is that? <laughs> uh, well, he says he's bilingual, so I just take it on. I just assume that he's telling me the truth. Well, I, I would think that. You know, it's a universal language, isn't it, cat? Uh, no, in the no, sense of no. haughtiness, uh, indifference, yeah. uh, all those other things that they can... Yeah, but if you're saying... Hunger in cat is... The dinner same time. <laughs> yeah. the cat. He's, there, he's there like a shot. It doesn't matter what language I say it in. <laughs> Absolutely. Say it in Russian or Chinese or, or, or Swahili, for that matter, and he'd be there. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, well, I think we've reached that point, uh, Quentin, where we yeah. uh, need to, you know... 
beautiful conversation this has been, but now things turn nasty. <laughs> yeah, Icelandic noir. Uh, thanks to Rebecca's random question. Ooh, okay. This question has only just come to me because I didn't actually have one prepared, but I've just thought of one. And I like this question. So you have a dispute with someone, right? And you, so you challenge them to a duel, but I need it to be a, a personalized duel. So not just with like guns or whatever. Like it could be a chess match, for example. How, what would you choose as your weapon? It could be an intellectual weapon or an actual weapon or a contest. Or, you know, what would it be? Oh, how long do I get to think about this? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, how about if I well, ask ask the, you first then? What, the young, while, while Quentin's thinking about it, yeah, the younger uh, yeah. it's a good one. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, what what what, what would I be? Well, you could be a tennis match or something. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah, <laughs> well, the, the younger imagine. version of me. Um, a, a very much younger version of me would have challenged them to a potato eating contest. Oh, that's different. I haven't heard of that. Is it yeah. just eat as many potatoes as you can? And it's one of my proudest achievements is that when I was, I think, twelve or thirteen, mm. I held the school roast potato eating championship. <laughs> Brilliant! <laughs> and how many was that? It was thirty-five. Wow. <gasps> Wow. With seconds of everything else as well. Oh, my God. Were were there any after effects? A little bloatedness, but otherwise fine. Wow. Yeah, this is one of the... You know what 12 12 and 13-year-olds are like. I know, I've got one. (laughs) Yeah, their their stomach's on legs, and they just eat constantly. And this was back in the days when school dinners were school dinners. And, Mm. And I'd just eat. Stayed in and I did, and I did defend my title several times successfully, <laughs> and retired. So on... You 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 are a champion then in some respect. You might that not have won it. any awards for translation yet, but you are a roast potato champion. And you've risen in the estimation of every listener for this. <laughs> um, but in, in a similar vein, I am the, uh, the, the, the my my sixth form college. I, I won the cream egg eating competition, consuming twelve in one minute. <laughs> um wow which we are... was basically i was diabetic from the moment i finished um <laughs> we are we are brothers under the skin surely. we are we are yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. many many ways i couldn't uh, do that <laughs> yeah it was uh it was grisly but it had to be that was for charity for right, okay. need, i think it was whereas the potato eating was pure vanity and greed <laughs> that's impressive though that's... Yeah. well come on rebecca what was yours be um, a draw off. So you just have to draw. You pick an object. You both have to draw it, and the best one wins. Oh. But then I've got a degree in fine art, so. <laughs> okay, well, I can. No, I wouldn't be able to. No, I would lose hands down instantly. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm. I'm wondering. You can tell us whether this is um, accurate or not, because I've just gone to Google Translate while we were talking, and I thought it would be lovely to know how to say random question. <laughs> In, in Icelandic. Now, I can ask a man who probably would be able to do that for us, but I thought I would ask Google Translate to see if they came anywhere near. So if I play it to the microphone, we'll see how it how it comes out. Go on, then. Just going to turn the volume up. Here we go. Yeah, that would do. Fantastic. Now, I think from here on in, it's going to be uh, Rebecca's. Yep. She doesn't do the same drama I do, but that's, yep, that's just fine. That, yep. That's amazing. Well, well done, Google. <laughs> uh, Nailed it. And, and that's a you know, if I might ask a a, a semi-serious before we finish uh, supplementary. Um, everyone in publishing is being swallowed up by AI at the moment. I mean, you know, it's influencing so much. Cover design. I could just go off yeah. and Editing, get, get one knocked off. Writing the book in the first place. Narration, uh, you know, my voice has probably already been cloned because they did that very sneakily in the, in a contract that, uh, you know, they took my voice. Um, oh, right. Wow. Yeah. You know, the people now, yeah, this is a, a story we were doing a few weeks ago, but find a way voices put in their, in their uh, clause in their contracts, which allowed them to export all the voices they re- hauled in and gave them to Apple f- for machine learning. 
so that I, Apple could start using real voices, uh, learn them, and do translation and do uh, sorry narration. So, what about translation? Is that something that because um, you know what goes into it, and you've talked we've talked about all the different debates and the, you know trying to to in both interpret and and deliver um, the spirit and the meaning and the emotion of each book and each author's voice, but do you ever worry that AI will will catch up with with that side of the, the business? Um, the literary translation, I don't think it will catch up with it in my lifetime. Well, I hope it won't. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, I, I can't see it being able to handle the, the the nuance and the feel that that is required for a for a novel. I can I can see it's already being used extensively for for news material and things like that, and I have to admit that for the day job I, I use Google Translate all the time. Although I have to be, although I'm careful with it, you have to be mm. judicious. Yeah. Um, well, you have to have some kind of familiarity with the language that it's coming from, so you'd be able to pick out at least, you know, this, the the glaring errors that it always makes anyway. Mm. Uh, and I can always see with how competitive <laughs> right okay that came from google um because some of them aren't as uh careful or as judicious as they should be mm. um especially with bizarre technical terms and fish names and things like that you think mm. okay well that google translate is not your friend <laughs> no indeed indeed um but i don't see it taking over fiction quite yet I hope. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. yeah. Um, should we mention this one? Yes. Stella Bloomquist. Yeah. Yeah. Because we haven't yet, have we? And this is the. Yeah. Um, this is the latest translation that's well. This one's um, out at the end of August, and this one has been a. It's been different because the author is. I, I don't. I can't speak to the author. Because it's a, an anonymous author. Wow. Ah, yeah. okay. So, you, what you have no communication at all, not even. Um, through... uh, I can send a message to Stella or whoever is behind Stella through the publisher. Mm. Might take days. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a bit. T- yeah, because we Very... one of our authors. Um, well, he's not anonymous. He has a pseudonym. And right, we had okay. to sign a non-disclosure. Ah, okay. Because we know his real name, but. Ah, right. Okay. I will eat more roast potatoes than you before I disclose his real name. <laughs> Rightly so, yeah. Because Stella is the name on the cover, but also the name of the, lead, of the, of the character. Yes. Oh. Um, and we don't know who Stella is, it, it, which is, and this is the bizarre thing in Iceland, because these books have been coming out since the end of the 90s. And it's still not common knowledge who Stella actually is. Which That'll is be like Banksy. <laughs> like I think so, yes, yeah. Um, which is bizarre in Iceland because it's a place where the rumour mill is just off the scale and, you know, secrets generally last until about tea time if you're lucky. So the fact <laughs> that it hasn't been, the fact that it isn't common knowledge is um, is very odd. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a fairly closely guarded secret. Mm. But it's, it's different to, it's been different because I've translated in the past an author who's no longer with us. Mm. which was an interesting interesting process because obviously you can't talk to the author but there is a you know there's a wider body of work there and you can talk to the author's heirs and the publisher and people like yeah. that but with this one no nothing wow. there, is the, there is the series of books and that's it and this comes with extra pressure because it's uh, a popular tv series right um it hasn't come with extra pressure so far, but I expect that that might come later. <laughs> yeah, I suppose the feedback might, yeah. might, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, can, I can just make a few educated guesses, but I don't know who the author is. Oh, yeah. educated guesses. Well, well, it's somebody. Well, the books have been coming out since '97, so it's somebody who's in their uh, sort of my sort of vintage. Um, it's you. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, Your wife. I know it's not her. <laughs> that would be a twist. It would be a really it... good twist, wouldn't it, if I guessed it was your wife? Right, I've just had an idea okay. for the next book. Right. That'd be brilliant. I have a feeling it's a man, 
but I'm not sure. Or it might be a group effort. But oh, whoever well, that, it, is, it could be, couldn't it? Yeah, but whoever it is, they know their stuff. There's no, this is this person is no slouch mm. because there is no messing about with these books. They are, it is bang, 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 uh, and it's somebody who really knows how to put a plot together. Uh, quite an intricate set of plots that twist together into a, a denouement. So it's, um, but yeah, it's been fun to translate, but but not having that author, the the author's approval or input in any way has been a little bit strange then also if you don't know who they are because I, I imagine if even if you know who they are you've seen a photo or you you see them online you know on hmm. social media or something you have an idea about them but you've got nothing no, nothing at all no it, it, and it's got to the point now where I'd prefer not to know mm. Um, so it's better that it's you know it's probably better that I don't know who they are because it, it might be somebody I know yeah, you might be surprised. Yeah, because yeah, this little literary world in Iceland isn't huge, and it's it's somebody who's in or around. Um, it's somebody definitely knows their stuff and probably has uh, Dashiell Hammett on their bedside table, um, and probably the ancient sagas as well, and if and of and maybe Tolstoy and Helga Luxness too. Wow! So it's somebody we need to get them on the podcast. <laughs> If only we could, yeah. <laughs> uh, somebody who's very well read, um, but no, but absolutely no slouch behind the keyboard. Mm. Yes, yeah, so Who it may be somebody you? I know. It may be somebody I it may be somebody I respect and like. It may mm. it may be somebody I don't like. Yeah, it may you be somebody I it's, it's a wonderful thing to be in a position to end. Uh, end on a mystery end on a mystery exactly a, 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 a hot yeah. book show which you know principally deals with mystery fiction and then it's the ultimate is uh is still a blomquist's murder at the residence yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Who uh, not, murder and who wrote the 28th it? yeah um so exactly a month just about fascinating uh quentin it's been absolutely fantastic thank you so much for joining well, us it's you. been fascinating thank you i'm glad you enjoyed it <laughs> So I wonder whether we will ever unravel the mystery as to who the mystery author is that it, uh, he's working on at the moment. Oh, I know. And I want that person on the podcast because that would be a great scoop. It would be, wouldn't it? Yes. Absolutely. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Thank you so much to Quentin for it joining was, us. It was quite funny when I suggested it might be his wife because <laughs> she's Icelandic. <laughs> yeah, true. True. Anyway, so yes, next week we're talking to Linda Mather. Is that how you say Matha? Matha, I should think, yeah. <laughs> I always rely on you for your, your um, broadcaster. Well, knowledge. no, I mean, you know, we'll find out. Yes. It could be Matha, it could be Mather. <laughs> Let's uh, call the whole thing off. Um, yeah. So so she's, that... she's an author, a published author with Joffe, and she's got more coming out as well. She's working on a new series that I know about, so mm. we'll talk to her all about that. What about the week to come? Well, for me, um, personally, there are two birthdays to consider, which both my boys have adjoining days. So uh, Ben will be 22 and James will be 19. And that's Tuesday and Wednesday. So um, happy birthday to your boys. Not quite sure how we're going to celebrate it because they've got a busy schedule, which dad now needs to fit into. So we'll figure that out. Um, But uh, in terms of uh, this week, it's a big week Uh, for Hobeck because we've got a book out. We've got a book out, The Deception by Maureen Miant. And uh, we also have a competition. We do? Yes. It is. uh, I've just launched it today. So by the time this podcast goes out, the competition's in full swing. You have to match the baby faces with the Hobeck author and myself as well. I'm in in the running. And if you can match them all and get them all right, you go into a draw. And the winner is going to win. A bundle, a bundle of books, not babies. Yeah, I was going to say baby bundle. It's fantastic. So, so check the website for details, um, and also if you subscribe to Hobeck, uh, you will have had an email about it or look at our pin tweet. Excellent, excellent. So that's the deception by Maury Myant and um, or Myant. <laughs> that's how I said it, didn't I? Yes. Yeah. I put sort of a I don't know, was that a French? <laughs> ah, Myon. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're excited to. Well, she does uh... go to France now and then. Yeah, no, so it's a big, uh, it's the big autumn release for us, and and uh, it had a brilliant review this morning. So it really the did. Blog tour started today, and it's had two reviews, and one of them was really, really good. I was very excited, so I even mm. put it on my own Facebook page because <laughs> I was like, oh, really good review. 
Absolutely. We're, we're kid-free this week, which is, apart from me dashing up to see my boys, um, you know, the kids are away for the week. So uh, we're off. Uh, next week, we'll be uh, presenting this show from Suffolk. Oh, yeah. So we will. Which we look forward to enormously. Uh, we're going to Southworld. Have and, a paddle with Lynn Laversha. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can't wait for that. So um, from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to check out who has won the Henshaw Short Story Competition. Yes, and enter our The Deception Competition. Absolutely. And, uh, well, it remains for us to say um, the usual, which is to check out our website, www.hobeck.net, for details of our authors, our books, uh, our news, and our audiobooks. But from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us, and have a wonderful and... Creative. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.